So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten. ten. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that'll be okay. Here we go. Ready, Pete? Yep. So this all began a couple of days before New Year's Day. I think it was the day before New Year's Eve or something like that, during that awkward period that we were discussing where you don't know whether it's Christmas or New Year or quite, you know, where mm. to begin. And we decided at home, for some reason, to clear out my attic, our attic, which hasn't... Basically, we moved into this house in 2008. We've just dumped stuff up there and not looked at it for well over a decade and we thought this can't go on because you can't even get in there and I was sorting through my stuff and one of the things that I found was a sheet of paper David which I shared with you and with Pete do you want to do you want to pick up the story or do you want to just yeah. leave me hanging no no so I I remember this vividly Ned uh, New Year's Eve Eve but then just when you're introducing it I actually fell into the trap of your story thinking we, I wasn't at your house <laughs> clearing out the attic because I actually thought, because even I was starting thinking, what were we doing with you? <laughs> Is this one of his dreams? Do I have to yeah. interpret this? <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. And then the, you came back and you, we went in our WhatsApp group and then we started waxing lyrical about it and looking at it and just going off on tangents and well, suddenly realised that yeah, the 2023 is a 20th anniversary of... 2003 the Tour de France that was arguably the most twisted and great Tour de France in modern history it, it, it was amazing so I should probably just explain that the piece of paper in question which I'm un, I, I find it unbelievable that it survived all this time and that I even kept it in the first place because how could I know that I would care about it 20 years hence at the time when I kept it it is really quite pristine condition it is the printed Ordre de départ, so the start list of the prologue of the twenty of the two thousand and three Tour de France. It's quite an amazing thing, and it's just like it's one of those things that when you're working on the race, you just get tossed your way in the morning, and you kind of forget about it. You fold it up, put it in your pocket, and all that sort of thing. But somehow this has survived the mists of time. It's got some biro scribbling of the address of my hotel in Paris and the telephone number of the guy who I, the concierge who I had to ring to get in if I was going to be late, and all that sort of thing. And right down at the bottom, it's got your name, David. Um, uh, you went off like sixth from last or something in that particular race. Yeah. And as you brilliantly pointed out, your start time was 1900. And yeah. if you'd been like, if you'd gone off uh, like two riders later... It was actually who was it? It was it was was it um, Gilberto Simoni who I think went off actually at 1903, which would have been amazing because that was like the the year that was the that was the reason why 2003 was special, yeah. and so that started us all off on this riff about let's talk about 2003, and also just a just a also the 1903 thing is that was my finishing time in. For the first, my first, for the prologue, the time, time trial, not prologue. I won in my first Tour de France in 2000. It was no. 19 minutes and three seconds. No. And and the, the 2003 Tour de France for me was 
my first hit at going for GC. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look at Pete's laughing. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, and <laughs> and I got third in the Dauphiné, and it was in a period when third in I the Dauphiné, and I was two thousand and three, yeah. chapter three. Yeah. Chapter I was three. I was, I was thirteen. <laughs> three. So a lot oh, of you were thirteen. Yeah. 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 Guess how old? Guess how old I was? Uh, thirteen. Th- thirty-three. <laughs> no, you weren't. <laughs> I was thirty-three. Oh my god! I'm twenty years older You're than you. You're Pete's age. I, yeah. I, I, I was Pete's. I mean, it's just age. ridiculous, isn't it? Oh my god! That's you were Pete's age. The 2003 Tour de France. When you first met me, I was Pete's age, David. Huh. So, so just to put, because I want before <laughs> before we go into the the depths and our, our memories and 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 the nostalgia of 2003 Tour de France, I think it's important to to mention that this was a period when I was doping, and uh, it, I was at the Nadir. And did I say that right, Ned? Nadir. Nadir. Yeah, yeah. Nadir. Na- yeah. Of yeah. my oh, um, na- professional Nadir of my professional career because I wanted everything to work and I was doing all I wanted to do was win and I succumbed to all these different things and you can read my book Racing Through the Dark to get all the details but I'm gonna not skip that but I want everyone to be aware I'm I never forget about that but I just want to talk about the racing in this podcast and that bike race and very aware of the fact that there's a lot of darkness involved and a lot of stuff that I had to overcome many years later and the stuff, a lot of stuff that happened before. But let's just talk about the racing in this podcast and what it was like. We're going to talk about the racing. We're going to talk about what Pete Kenyuk was doing when he was 13 yeah. years of age. Um, but before all of that, here's a reminder of what was going on in the world 20 years ago in 2003. <laughs> As David Miller was pulling on his Lycra and getting ready for the prologue and the Tour de France was about to get underway, the British charts were topped by the US band Evanescence from Little Rock, Arkansas, with their unforgettable smash hit, Bring Me to Life. Wake me up, wake me up, wake me up, wake me 2003 was otherwise notable for the US invasion of Iraq, Saddam Hussein's eventual capture in Tikrit, completion to 99% of the Human Genome Project, a two-decade-long international collaboration to identify over 20,000 genes which make up the basic DNA of the human being. The Columbia Space Shuttle disaster which killed seven astronauts upon re-entry. Cristiano Ronaldo making his Manchester United debut at the age of 18. Concord that year flew for the final time, having begun its lifespan in 1969, coincidentally the year of my birth. There were severe earthquakes in both Algeria and Iran, Some American outlets renamed French fries Freedom Fries in protest at France's ambivalence about the invasion of Iraq. China launched its first ever astronaut into space, Yang Liwei. The village of Brogdale recorded a record-breaking 38.5 degrees, a UK record now, of course, surpassed. And France suffered 14,802 deaths as a result of the European heatwave, which saw Auxerre's thermometers rise to over 40 degrees. So, Pete, um, great bit of music, that, by the way. Great bit of rock. That That was such a boomer choice, wasn't it? Oh, God. You were... Well, it was was number one. It wasn't my fault. It's just, you know, that's that's where we go. Um, Pete, you were 13. What was... was. 
What was 13-year-old Pete Kenyuk all about? I, I can't remember. <laughs> I really can't. It's one year that's just elapsed my memory. I, re- I was thinking about the races I was doing. And, you know, I can remember being an under-16, so it would have been, yeah, 15 or 16, obviously. Um, junior memories are really vivid. But as an under-14, I really can't remember much about about what I was doing or what races I was doing. So I look back at my scrapbooks and there's a couple of photos from the junior tour, uh, the youth, Kerry Youth Tour. And that's... What was, the, what was the Kerry Youth Tour, Pete? Kerry Youth Tour was the most amazing schoolboy road race in the world because instead of racing in like car parks or go-kart tracks, it was actually on like real roads, you know, with climbs and descents and... You felt Open like roads. a pro bike racer, you know. Yeah. It's mm. like you were—you really did feel like you were in the Tour de France. So it was just epic. Looked forward to it every year. We camped or stayed in B and Bs. It was amazing. Oh, I was about to—I was about to say something super moronic. Where was it? County Kerry, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. in Ireland. Exactly. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's so because you still hadn't—you didn't know you were a bike racer then. So, do you have oh, any I memories did. of of school oh, life? Oh, I did. He did. He did know. I was yeah, so did, serious. Did know. Loved it. Yeah. And what about school? Were you just going to secondary school then? You were in secondary school. Yeah, I was, yeah. But I can't, li- yeah. Li- can't remember. Huh. <laughs> That's really mad. I, I mentioned our WhatsApp group. It's really strange. And in, in that pivotal period of your life as a bike racer, you're so focused. Like Pete just said, you, you know you're a bike racer and you become so focused on that that everything becomes uh, kind of transient because you've got this super little mad goal you're going for which made no sense still in 2003 pete because no british racer has won the tour de france mark cavendish still hadn't hit the pro scene and he was still your friend at the time a few years older and it was like isle of man hadn't done what it's done since yeah i mean it doesn't stand out as a year which i like specifically remember i just have it as a almost a part of my life from 10 to probably 16 which all sort of merges into one i don't know if that's how it generally feels when you get to the grand old age of 33 ned um if you can remember <laughs> that 20 years ago <laughs> but, yeah yeah well let me let, let, let me ask so skipping to ned so pete when ned was your age he came to his first tour de france in 2003 33 year old ned mm. that was and I've, I've, already done, I've already experience. done four you're way ahead of me, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> way ahead of me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's incredible. What was it know? like, Ned? I I had um, a three, four-year-old daughter at the time, and our second child had just been born. So I left behind me a kind of three-month-old, two, two or three-month-old baby who is now turning 20. <laughs> mm. It's kind of nuts. Crazy. Um, and, and and the other day, this is the other thing I fished out when I when I went into the attic. I can't believe I kept this as well. I'm, I, my, oh, yeah. My, the accreditation. Person. We're looking at accredita- an accreditation picture of Ned. It's on a video yeah. call. And he looks like uh, a teenager. It's just ridiculous. Not Ned. a 33-year-old. It, you know, <laughs> really terrible Do you know how we're, we're the same height? Yeah. And there's a lot of same shoe size. Uh, yeah. it, my first Tour de France <laughs> for ITV, I also left behind my um, four-week-old four daughter. I, I actually think you, me, and David are the same person, just mm. but dotted through, mm. dotted mm. through time. We've just, we're just living different aspects of mm. the same person's life. 
we're endlessly yeah. we're like doctor who or something we're just regenerating through yeah. like you know it's crazy yeah. isn't it it's i left I left, Har- I left harvey at like two days old to go to the giro <laughs> less than two days <laughs> legend you legend <laughs> that was anyway. a big mistake <laughs> let's let's rewind to 2003 let's let's rewind to 2003 david you were what 25 uh no i was 20 to i was uh, 26 my birthday is january the 4th so 26 okay just yeah 26 uh, yeah um oh by the way happy birthday we missed your birthday the other day oh yeah that's fine I just snuck that's fine. um 20 20 26 okay so you were like you were an absolute hitter and i'd I arrived at this bike race I didn't understand, uh, a sport I didn't understand. It, like, you know, we've gone over this ground. I didn't know anything about it. And I, and I rock in here and someone says to me, there's a British rider who might, who might do really well in the opening prologue. He might take the yellow jersey right at the opening. And I didn't speak to you until after the prologue that went wrong. I, 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 I was thinking about that prologue where you dropped your chain and you should have won and you would have easily won because you were five seconds up at the split. Two, there were two intermediate splits, I think. Two checkpoints. Yeah, I, I was going to win by 10 seconds. That was kind of what was going to happen. So I think what was really interesting with that, and, and looking back on it, because after we decided to do this, I, I, was, I thought a bit more about it, which I don't really think about because it's always the, the chain coming off. But it, it was that year I'd put so much pressure on myself and it disappeared. And when I speak to you, um, English and the British kind of uh, media team were very low on my kind of agenda. I was much more interested in L'Equipe and the French. I lived in France and had become French and actually my English had become a bit slack and a bit weird. And two days before, I remember, and I was just thinking about this today, uh, two days, three days before the prologue, I went out with L'Equipe and did the whole course with L'Equipe and they did a double page spread the day before. And which is insane if you want to win prologue the prologue of the tour de france the centenary edition uh i put because i wanted to be welcomed in france you're really lucky that we welcomed you back in the way you treated treated us all i was it's true pete and thank you for letting me back in it's all right (laughs) thank you for letting me back i was 13 so you know it it hit me hard yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh but uh then it came to the race and i i was so confident i'd done so much prep and in multiple ways, but also the preparation of my bike. And that was the whole mistake with the bike. And that's another story. But I, I was up for it, but then it all fell to pieces very quickly. And I spent the majority of that Tour de France stressed out, not sleeping, sick, worrying about everything. But uh, it bookended with two different experiences. But uh, when you met me, I was at my absolute worst. And, and when I listened back and You've you've found some things that we'll listen to in this podcast as it goes on. You can hear just the negativity in me, and it was listening back is quite brutal. Well, let, let, we'll come to that in a second. But I, I first of all, I want to play a clip from. This is two days before the Tour de France started, if not three days. So it started on the Saturday. Um, I think this was on the Thursday, two days before. Lance Armstrong held a press conference. I I. I I was waiting with a cameraman to see Lance Armstrong enter the press conference area. And when he entered and the rush of camera crews towards him and paparazzi, I had never, and I'd come from football, I had never seen anything like it. I had never seen anything like it. And then he sat down in front of, there wasn't the team around him, it was simply him and the massive cluster of microphones. And he held court 
for maybe three quarters of an hour. And listening, I remember at the time being absolutely blown away by the way he spoke. And listening back, as I did today, for me, it's lost none of its, no, for better or worse, its power. And this is what Armstrong had to say back then. When everybody uh, talks about victory and what's going to happen and what are you going to do, it gives me a bad feeling. Um, but I have to stay realistic and understand that, you know, nothing is given in this sport and anybody can win. Well, not anybody, but I think the race has everything. I think it has difficulty, it has joy, it has uh, excitement, it even has death, um, which I've seen up close. But to me, it's an event that, uh, that I, I wasn't born with and I wasn't raised with, but I've learned to love. David, I mean, 2003 Lance Armstrong, he was a different man from the guy. I mean, we all are. That's why we're doing this podcast. We're different people. But my God, he was different. What I found really interesting listening back to that, it was the Lance I knew kind of back in the late 90s and early 2000s. His, his accent's different and my accent's different now as well. But he sounded... He sounds more American. He sounds more, he sounds younger, obviously. But there is, and I can understand, uh, and I thought about it afterwards after I, I'd listened back to that as well, is he wasn't speaking, and I just said before that I was trying to attract the French media. So I was doing my stuff because that's where I lived and that's all I cared about and I wanted to build a home there and do those things. He was interested in the mass media. He was eloquent. He was clever. He was telling grandiose stories before Raffer existed, before Rouleur. He helped create that idea of... And, you know, we... I have my history. We all have our history with Lance in different ways. But, you know, he was very good at doing that. He was very good at kind of painting a bigger picture. And he was doing it because he understood the game. For him, it was a whole big game. Pete, Pete you must have... You must have been there at home, like watching on, maybe because yeah, you, the I highlight show, yeah. <coughs> Channel Four, wasn't it? Every evening with well, the parents. <laughs> it was ITV. Was it ITV? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it was ITV. It was. Sorry, yeah. yeah. I, I think was everyone just 4. referred that to it as Channel Four. Then, Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, no, it's highlight show every evening after the parents finished work. Couldn't wait for it. Loved it. Favorite part of the day, and he was just the man, wasn't he? Especially as a thirteen-year-old kid watching the Tour de France. Uh, an unbelievable bike rider to watch and it just i remember because he just he landed cadence on the scene didn't he you know before then it was like yeah, big old yeah, terrain yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jan yeah. big gears and mm. it, power meters weren't really a thing especially in like the school boys and junior ranks back then so then it was all like this cadence and i remember trying to like really replicate how he was riding at home on my mm. bike so yeah. it was he was epic it wasn't he yeah, he was just a, he, um, yeah, he, he I had mean, that, yeah, that ability you know, to do that. All things aside. Yeah, all things yeah, aside. Yeah, well, uh, let's, let's just, look, well, for the last time, let's do this disclaimer. Yeah. No one here on this podcast is under any illusion other than, you know, that Lance Armstrong was incredibly de 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 detrimental his influence to lives, human lives, and, you know, the, the propriety of the sport. But what we're doing on this podcast is reliving what it was we like were, in 2003. Oh, in 2003, exactly. And, yeah, yeah, what we were Pete feeling was 13, at the time. 
I was coming to this sport having no idea what was going on. So I was mm. just captivated by the presence of this man who I thought was incredibly charismatic. And mm. David, you were in the middle of your own, as you've described, you know, personal hell, I suppose, mm. or the beginning of your personal hell, you know, by, by, by doping. Anyway, so the, the, prologue, the prologue happened. And my abiding memory of what happened after you dropped your chain, David, and so narrow, wasn't it? You're ridiculous. Was it 0.08 yeah. of a second? Yeah. And then you would yeah, have beaten your, one of your like closest that. friends, yeah. Brad McGee, mm. in the peloton. Yeah. Um, and take you know, I'll just, I'll just. So this was really mad with that with Brad McGee, who who got the yellow jersey and 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 beat me. Um, he was clean, and Whoa, that's... he was clean, and we were really good friends. And he knew what I was doing, so I'd spoken to him about it. No way. So when my when my chain dropped, it felt like karma. karma. Let's not go and to karma again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's not going to karma. But um, I saw him afterwards, and not many people know this. When the Tour de France finished, me and him flew from Paris to Biarritz and spent three days together hanging out. Nice. We were such good friends, and it was just this kind of... He knew the decisions I'd made, and it was kind of one of these things. Is the, was, it, but then the trauma that inflicted on me through the race was nuts. Is there a quick story about the chain? Or did it just literally... Yeah, yeah, quickly. Yeah, there is a quick story. So my bikes, so I was an absolute fanatic on my bikes and coming from the British time time trialing scene, I was in Cofferty's. So they didn't really care about them. So I'd buy all these Dextra parts and I'd source them and I'd, I'd work with the mechanics and they'd then put all these extra parts that I bought on the bike. So my bike was completely custom spec, nothing to do with the sponsors apart from the frame, even the wheels I'd change. And... They wanted to help me so much. <laughs> they wanted to help me so much. They were like, well, David, we've made it fast. We've taken the front derailleur off. And, oh. and oh. yeah. Oh, no and, way. Uh, and that we've looked at, and they'd been looking at uh, studying British time trial. And they said, well, British time trialers don't use front derailleur. It must work. And can you go and try it? And I was like, yeah. And I went out and I'd try it and I was great. And I Alex really Dowsett was 14, so he couldn't have even chipped in. <laughs> He couldn't have chipped in and helped. I didn't have Alex Dowsett there to help me. And, but what I, what I hadn't taken into account, and even I rode the bike in that, when I was in the Le Keep recon a couple of days before, uh, the finish was uh, in front of... Uh, in Les Invalides, wasn't it? Les, Les Invalides. Uh, yeah, and it's, cobble, so. it's cobblestones the last 800 meters. Yeah. Oh, no. And so I came around there, and I think I had at that point eight seconds on second place on in the prologue, and hit it, and the chain bounced off but what was this is cool pete you'd love this and it's in uh, i think time trial the film i was there and, and my heart rate was like 190 and i was going down trying to pick it pick the chain up and put it back on and i got the <laughs> chain back on somehow and put it back on and then just started sprinting again and then oh lost God. by less than a second if that but, wasn't in the time trial film then <laughs> then yeah. i definitely oh, don't want to watch it that was time trial time trial <laughs> I've, I've looked. So, I've yeah. looked back at. I've looked back at the film today. That, well, the, the the original footage. Yeah. And it's incredible how quickly you get that chain back. I remember it. Yeah. Then, I remember it. And then you're That's out one of the thing I do remember. And you're sprinting. Yeah. yeah. And it's so yeah. close. It's so close. Eight hundredths yeah. of a second. Oh, yeah. To Brad yeah. McGee of all people. And then yeah. and then, but as you you'll go through actually because I've listened to all the bits that Ned's going to put in in this podcast. I'm coughing like a maniac at the end. I then didn't sleep that night and I didn't sleep for two or three nights afterwards because I was so stressed and anxious because then when that finished, I had an absolute freak out at the owners of my team and the general management and direct sportif because like, why do I have to buy my own kit for my time trial bikes? I've been doing this for three years and you don't support me. 
And and I had this abs <laughs> and I and I actually I remember François Migraine, who's the boss of sorry, I'm just going a little he asked for it to be short. François Migraine, who was the the, the boss of Coffrees at the time, he was there at the Tour de France and I came out the Coffrees little camper and I went across to Anse and I took him across and I said, Look at their bikes. Look at their bikes. Why don't I have these these bikes? I have to buy all my parts. And then I went on a rage and I couldn't sleep for two or three days and made myself so tired I've, I had bronchitis and just suffered for like two weeks till I got to the final time trial where I started to kick out again. Do you know, David, yeah. I can I can totally imagine that. Yeah, <laughs> you can, yeah, you can. Huh? I kind of can. Look at yeah. these bikes. <laughs> I, did, I literally did that. I took him across, walked him across and, to, and looked and I was there, me, just after losing that when pointing at the bikes saying, why don't I, why don't we have these bikes? Pete, I did, Pete Giants, we had me? that... Yeah. We we had that slight experience with David after the last podcast recording when the audio went wrong again uh, for like the third podcast in a row. Exactly and I think David, that. David yeah. walked us across, didn't he? He, he walked did. us across to the Onse podcast. He did. <laughs> it, he was said, it was ruthless. Look, why don't I get that? Yeah. <laughs> this is what he needs. Order it now, Ned. Yeah, yeah. So here we are. Here we are. I remember, I remember that you... So obviously, you know, from a British perspective, obviously you were the story having you know come so close and i remember you just shot through the finish line and out to your camper because the start finish line was very close wasn't it so you were just like out yeah. and rendell was charged with running after you and the dock <laughs> the dock was on the radio and i could hear on the radio i was just in the live position but the dock was like go get miller go get him find out what went wrong rendell don't come back don't come back unless you get a Miller interview. And I could hear Matt like going out of radio range, going. <laughs> and then all I could hear for the next half an hour was the doc threatening to rip Matt's head off. You know, Literally. You know what? Um, you know when you know people like me turn up to the crew on the first Tour de France yeah. and they meet Matt. I've met him before, but they have yeah. no idea what he's been through, do they? No, it's amazing. Over the course of 20 years. I mean, I've seen a bit of the Sagan stuff, but this like backdates (laughs) years and years of ruthless like (laughs) interviews and tasks that he's been dealt with. I remember like, and so that subsided and we came off air somehow. I had the whole yellow jumper moment. We'll come on to that. But I remember seeing Matt just sitting on a parapet, like having had the doc threaten to kill him on on, (laughs) like literally over radio. And Matt just saying, I'm out. I'm going to get the next... And I'd never met Matt before. It's not my first day of knowing oh, yeah. Matt. Yeah. So what were like, your impressions? Uh, who is this guy? And what's just happened? <laughs> and Matt's going, Matt's going, I'm just getting, I'm getting the next plane out of, I'm getting the next plane out of France. I'm off, I'm off, I'm off. But before I knew it, we were in a car driving hell for leather to get to Miller's Hotel because the race had moved on. So Miller's Hotel was close and to the And this is what he start. loves. And then Matt was tasked with... Not me. Like, like basically getting Miller out of his room to do me an interview like at nine o'clock at night or something. And David, you came out eventually. I remember having to negotiate with, was it Francis van Londerzeele? Uh, Francis van Londerzeele, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah, eventually, yeah. you know, fair play to you. You came out and you gave us an interview. Anyway, listen, we could get, look, we got to the prologue. Stage one. <laughs> Stage one was a bunch sprint, David. Um, there was a, uh, there was a crash, <laughs> a, a big Kelme rider. Kelme, there's a name. Pete, I love you. You love this era, don't you? Absolutely that... love it. The green and blue striped jersey. E- exactly that jersey. A big green and blue Kelme jersey hits the deck. Oscar Severe. 
with around about 700 metres to go. And somehow your mate, Brad McGee, who's in yellow, I mean, he's really close to the back wheel of this rider who goes down. Somehow he just manages to get through it. But two thirds of the peloton, at least, if not three quarters, are either on the deck or held up. Track rider, crash. isn't he? Track rider. There you go. Um, and uh, in the end, <laughs> these are just great names. So I'm just going to say them. Alessandro Pataki wins mm-hmm. ahead of Eric Pataki. Zabel yeah. and Robbie McEwen in third place. Yeah. Pataki yeah. had been to the Giro that year and won like six or seven stages or something, but had mm-hmm. never won a stage of the Tour de France. And he smashed it at the first possible opportunity on stage one. Mm-hmm. Do you, want, do, you want a, a, do you want a very brief anecdote on that one as well? I'd love one. Yeah. So <laughs> I was um, so before I was in the green jersey because I was second on GC, and oh yeah, I, I, and I I went because as you do as Pete as you know you you go and have your your nature's call just before the start for the neutral zone, and I went and had my nature's call and kind of was doing that and I just decided to sit and have a moment, and I had a little well up. And kind of had a little well up because I was like, this is, I hadn't slept the night before and all the stuff. And Lance saw me because he'd gone for Nature's Corner some place. And and I got up, he's like, you're right. And I was like, yeah, I'm all right. He's like, it's a horrible color green, isn't it? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you'll be all right. And, <laughs> okay, that might be one of the best stories you've ever told. That's <laughs> Yeah. I can, I'm with you there. I can totally imagine yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that's. A f- I just, uh, and he just, he just came, didn't say anything. He just said, "You're right." Uh, no, he was like, "Yeah." Did you? How, had you so, spoken to Lance much before that? That um, we were really, moment. we were close. Yeah, yeah, we we were pretty close friends, kind of from up until a period. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, it, it was treating me still. We had a quite close friendship where he was, I was still his little brother of sorts, and kind of would look after me slightly, and kind of. So that was very much one of those moments where it was like, you're right, kind of. And I was like, no, I'm not all right. <laughs> it was like, yeah, yeah. Wow. So anyway. Just a, uh, just a little observation on. about Armstrong, watching the footage that I've watched today, mm. looking back at the race, is I remember him because he was, you know, especially then when he was, you know, winning GC and on doping and but mm. winning GC. Mm. He was like, when he stood opposite him, he was like, a tiny bird-like man, really. About our height, you know, Ned. Yeah, about, about you about and your me. height. Oh, yeah, we yeah. were very similar humans, <laughs> you, me, and Lance Armstrong, you know, physically. <laughs> He's not a but, physically imposing figure. No, Let's put it that but, way. But, no, but, but I've got a theory about this. You don't have to be. Because I'm not no. physically imposing, but I feel like I can be imposing in other ways. Oh, yeah, you uh, can. Uh, you can be. A, you don't really uh, You well. can. You can completely. <laughs> but this is the point. On a bike, on a bike, Armstrong's chest seemed to expand. And like, Pigeon, like, so he put him on a bike, and he got like this super, like Mister America sized, yeah. like chest cavity, Avenger style. And his shoulders look enormous, and mm. yet when he stepped off the bike, they kind of shrank back to normal size. So he must have had a transformer <laughs> kind of, really weird, really weird. Mm. Um, talking about shoulders, <laughs> Stephen Cruz, really, really important, really. <laughs> that's too, no, that's that's, that's folk wasn't in the uh, two thousand three. He was, he was like thirteen as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he probably was around about that. Um. But no, a really important little subplot of stage one and that crash was that Tyler Hamilton broke his collarbone in two places. Big subplot. Mm. Ho- ho- hold that thought. Hold that thought. And that, and that CSC, the team, were having Bjarne Reese's team, Tyler Hamilton's team. Obviously, Hamilton, a former teammate of Armstrong, da-da-da-da. Um, but 
um, CSC were being followed through the entire race by an IMAX camera to make an yeah. IMAX film about the Tour de France and Tyler Hamilton winning the Tour de France. Stage one, he breaks his collarbone. <laughs> <laughs> Story. Anyway, so stage stage two. <laughs> we're going to rattle on. We're going to rattle on here. I'm going to I'm going to rattle through two stages. Unless you can interrupt me, David, with like an anecdote. Stage yeah. two, another bunch sprint. Brad McGee in yellow attacks in the final kilometer with about 700 meters to go, right? Yeah. And I think and he attacks not really in the expectation of pulling off some amazing pursuiting win, mm. but he attacks to destroy the leadouts of all the other teams, and in mm. the end, his teammate Baden Cook. Baden Cook wins mm. uh his first his first ever mm. um and we'll come on to your relationship with mcgee and cook because mm. that features a little bit later on yeah. in the race uh which you can probably remember but that was where lance i think lance had a, one of his only ever punctures what on stage two yeah yeah just i think it was there where he it is went to the line but it's fine yeah yeah i think so anyway carry on no, it's an interesting point. Um, <laughs> stage stage three, um, there's another big crash. It's another bunch sprint um, into into the final. Uh, an Austrian rider who's riding for Gerlsteiner. Was it Gerlsteiner back then? I think it was. Yeah, yeah it was. Mostly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Rene Hasselbacker. Um, yeah, Hasselbacker. Tr- tr- yeah. yeah, he tries to he tries to kind of um, elbow Robbie McEwen out of the way, and he's twice Robbie McEwen's size. And he bounces off McEwen <laughs> and hits the deck because Robbie could look after himself. Um, so there's a, yeah. there's a crash. There's a crash in the last few hundred meters and Alessandro Pataki wins stage number two. Um, sorry, stage number three. Stage four is the team time trial. Now, I think this is really interesting because I hadn't realized this until I watched the recap. Um, but US Postal had never won the team time trial on the Tour de France until 2003, despite the fact that this is Lance Armstrong's fifth attempt to win the Tour de France, or fifth, no, was going to be his fifth victory at the Tour de France. And so this is US Postal's first victory and they dominated it, David. Do you remember mm. anything about that race? I don't, you know, I oddly, I can't even remember the team time trial. Of, I, I think I was in such an angry phase at that moment with my team that I kind of went into it with, negativity but i do remember christian vanderveld my friend from when they had been i think what was it 1999 2000 when the team 2000 or 1999 where they crashed out and it was vdv that kind of and harass that kind of hit the line or something it wasn't harass at the time but yeah they didn't have a track record of being amazing at team time trials and this is when 2003 they it had taken them four years to get a team together that could actually do all disciplines. Because up to that point, it had been a bit ad hoc, and we always forget that in its early years, it had been very low budget and very kind of uh, the leader, and we put all our investment into the leader and ad hoc the team. But 2003 was the first time it was like, oh no, they have a team that can do this. And so the team time trial was like, that's where the blue train began on many levels. If my memory serves me right, and... who was the teammate who took the jersey for the day? Or is this a different... Am I right? Mm. Victor, Victor Hugo, Hugo Peña. Peña. Yeah, there we go. So, mm. At least I remember something about being, two, uh, about being yeah. 13, not 2013. Yeah. Yeah, yeah good memory. That is good impressive. Memory. Very, that is impressive. very impressive. Pete, this was the first time after the stage that I, and we were live again, I think, 
I had to interview Lance Armstrong face to face. And I was already uh, kind of after four days in, I thought this guy's huge. <laughs> and um, especially his chest. Um, and and I was really nervous. And do you have any internal I, dialogue before? I had loads on? of internal dialogue. And I thought, <laughs> whatever you do, don't say yellow jumper by mistake. But if you listen to this clip carefully, you will notice I come within a hair's breadth of calling the yellow jersey, the yellow jumper in front of Lance Armstrong in the centenary Tour de France after the team time trial. Here's the clip. And how does it feel for the US Posties to be top of the tree, but uh, for you not to be in the yellow jersey for a change? Oh, you know, that's not a problem at all. I mean, it's, uh, we wanted to win and uh, we felt like we we deserved to win. We felt like we had the best team and we felt like we've, uh, you know, sort of not, not ridden our best the last few years. So to win is, is uh is, is a real is a real satisfying feeling uh so there we go so stage five and uh, ned, ned ned can yeah. i just i just i just want to dwell on that slightly <laughs> in the in regards what was so different to cycling because you and for our listeners you'd been at the elite level of premier league football and what was so different coming into it well you you were you were a fascination to me straight away mm. i mean we'd only yeah. i think i'd only spoke to you just that once back then after mm. after the coffee this you know after the thing i thought you were incredibly well, who is this guy what's this all about that was kind of like deeply fascinating to me but with respect to you david my fascination at this point in the race is lance armstrong because yeah. he was the name he was you know mm. i was a complete outsider but my god i knew about lance armstrong like mm. i knew his backstory by then i knew the cancer story and you know it was kind of a thing and here I was, and he was giving me the time of day, and he must have known I was a complete outsider. I think I, I acquitted myself reasonably well. I don't think I asked stupid questions, as is very possible to do with cycling when you first come to it. Um, so I think straight away there was a there was a reasonable amount of respect coming my way yeah. from Armstrong, um, but more much more importantly than that, I thought Armstrong, and again. I caveat this with all that we know about Armstrong now, but I, I genuinely think Armstrong, one number one, listened to the question, relished the challenge of the question, and enjoyed answering the question. Can you think of anyone else in cycling or in any sport? Yes. Who has that? Who? Well, in cycling, I can, and this is the point. And 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 in in the sport that I'd come from, I I encountered that very seldom. Really, I can't um, think of anyone who relishes the question. And all right, well, they give the impression of relishing the question, or actually, maybe they do. So I, I, I sometimes think that there are some sports people who quite enjoy answering questions, but wouldn't admit to it in front, of, especially yeah, not in front of their true. peers. Mm. You know, like because it's not cool to to be seen to enjoy being interviewed. But actually, I think deep down, some some mm. personalities quite enjoy that process. And I think Armstrong was one of those people who didn't need to justify himself in any terms. Mm. He just he just enjoyed the thrill of it, and that was really interesting to me. And he wasn't no, he wasn't just someone, was he? He was Lance Armstrong. And, and did you did you know anything about? Um, obviously, you dig, you do your research, you're a pro. But what the Tour de France was and the the kind of history, or was this very much a journey of discovery as you went through this Tour de France? I mean. I, I did in theory, David, but it didn't mean anything to me. Mm. So when people spoke about Henri de Grange in 1903, mm. you know, it was kind of a, a, a note in my notebook. Mm. But, you know, deep down, it didn't mean a damn thing to me. It was just something I had to remember to say. Mm. Um, it's, that's, that came later. That came much later. 2003, 
as we've spoken about, was such an extraordinary race. It this, hit me. Yeah. It yeah. hit me like being slammed into a brick wall. It was like, mm. boom, have a bit of that. Mm. Have a bit yeah. of that in all its, yeah. also, in all its glory and also all its Also, I think, I think it's important for our listeners to understand the 2003 Tour de France was a centenary, which was the first of 1903. So they made it such an extravagant tour in the sense started it started, started and finished in Paris. Started yeah. under the Eiffel Tower, the prologue, finished yeah. there, hit all the key, key stages. Your first Tour de France was like literally a, a greatest hits. Yeah, and and, and ended up being the greatest one of the greatest tours, which is will carry on. And actually, for me, I'd forgotten about it until mm. we brought it back up about a week ago. Mm. How epic it actually was, and how many oh. incidents there, there were. Even yeah. in terms of Lance Armstrong's reign, it was the one, the one tour where he came under threat, and it looked quite close to mm. the point where he might not win. Mm. Absolutely. What? We'll come to that. Should we jump on? Let, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Before we jump on, quite a significant moment here in the development of um, our podcast, Never Strays Far. Because um, for, the, for the first time, under our control and under our auspices and with uh, the support of some wonderful partners, we are going to be um, presented uh, with an opportunity to take ownership of our podcast and plan for its future in these terms. One of our partners for 2023 is Athletic Greens. I've been taking AG1 every single morning for nearly two months now. It's a foundational nutrition drink that contains 75 high quality ingredients that give me key daily nutrients and long-term gut health support. It's the first time I've taken a regular supplement since retiring from professional racing. Even when I was a pro cyclist, I was never a big fan of taking vitamin pills or supplements. They felt like a daily burden, and often, when I'd run out, I'd be in no rush to replace them. AG1 makes it so simple. It's the first thing I do when I arrive in the kitchen in the morning. One scoop in water, shake, and drink. The best part is that it tastes really good. It's a micro habit that delivers macro benefits and helps almost everybody take great care of their health every day. My initial reason for starting with AG1 was because I'm on a mission to get healthy and fit for the Cape Epic mountain bike adventure I'm doing with my sister in March. I know it's not just about the training, which is lucky because I haven't done much yet, but more importantly, about having a baseline health that allows me to be better. AG1 has become a daily ritual for me and one that will continue beyond any sporting objectives. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash neverstraysfar. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash neverstraysfar. You'll also find that link in the show notes. Go and check it out. It's worth trying. Back to the show, Ned. Let's do a back to the show. Stage five. Oh, my God. We're going to rattle through. Stage five. A dominant win by Alessandro Bataki. Again, win number three. And by the way, I find it really weird these days when I go to the Giro d'Italia, me and Ale Jet, <laughs> we sit side by side in the, um, at the finish line, me and, me and Pataki. Like, and he has about as much English as I have Italian. Um, and yet we have every morning we have this little conversation 
about what's going to happen on the stage of the Giro. And I, I do mine in Italian out of a point of pride. You know, something like, eh, per me, lui è molto più uh, veloce. And uh, he says something like, oh, no, for me, it is always something like that. And uh, the conversation doesn't go very well. But um, we're good. People be fine. People yeah. be fine. Have you ever shared a game of Uno? Uno. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uno. <laughs> Uno. Due. Tre. Um, so on to stage right. say. So that was that was um, Vittoria numero tre per Alessandro Petacchi. Um, so he's won three stages. Um, now it's tappa sei, stage six. Stuart O'Grady, David. Stuart. Your mate. And a, a rider who I can't remember at all from Brioche La Boulangère uh, oh. called Anthony Guélin. Or Guélin. Anthony Guélin. You yeah. remember him? Guélin. Okay. Yeah. Those two riders are away in the breakaway and they are literally caught with 300 meters to go. Mm. Another bunch sprint. Alessandro Pataki. Ale, ale Jet. <laughs> no. <laughs> bye, bye. Non possible. Non possible. Numero quattro. Quattro. Um, which brings us to the first day in the Alps. Ooh. Stage seven, right, with a downhill finish into Morzine. The first thing that happens on the first climb is that Alessandro Pataki climbs off. <laughs> <laughs> in true chipo, t- uh, he goes home. Um, then various things happen. And on the Col de Ramas, um, Richard Vironk attacks and takes it home for a solo win. He wins in Morzine. Um, as he did in 2000 as well. Um, but, David, and he takes the yellow jersey as well by two minutes and 37 seconds mm. at the end of the day. But David Miller finishes that stage in eighth place. Have you got anything to say about that other than... Oh, uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but are you playing your thing there? I thought David was looking at me. I was like, I was 13, mate. I don't oh, know. No, I, was, I, was, I don't oh, know no, if you're... Oh, no, no, I wasn't playing the thing. I'll play it in a second, but I'll keep this bit in the podcast because I can't be bothered to edit it out. Anyway. Okay, that's but fine. That's, that's very good. Yeah. yeah. How did you end yeah. up in eighth place in an Alpine stage, David? Well, Cause I was because were... I was climbing well at the time and that was the whole reason after the going for GC. I was going for GC, but I was kind of under the weather and I was kind of... Yeah, I wasn't... I was in a bad place and I was sick and... I was disappointed in myself. Eighth wasn't where I wanted to be, and the way I I got to eighth was terrible, because I should have been with the best, and I was like hanging on for grim death and chasing back on, and after being so dominant in the prologue with my and the form I had, it shouldn't have been that bad. But I was wasn't sleeping. I was coughing. I was sick. I was all over the place, and so I was just miserable. I was like, this isn't, this, it's not supposed to be like this. So that's, that's, that's what it was like for me. So I've got no the, memories the, of that. Isn't that what the, Brad the, felt like when he won in 2012? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Only slightly more successful than David Miller on that particular occasion. Um, so here's, here's David Miller talking to me at the end of uh, stage, what was it? Stage seven. Well on David, you stuck with the pace. How did you feel? Oh, terrible. I blew up at the top of the climb. Seeing stars. Fush has some food in my pockets, otherwise I'd have been dead, but yeah. I was feeling good apart from that, it just blew completely at the top. So anyway. Nonetheless, to do what you've done on a day in this heat, you must be you must be reasonably happy with your day's work. Yeah, no, it's good. I'm, I'm happy. Okay, that's fine. how I was feeling. Stage eight, David, your first experience of Alp Duez and what a what a stage what a stage it was. A couple of riders were off the front. US Postal took it up on the foot of the climb. 
David Miller had chased on furiously, as far as I remember, on the Galibier descent to get onto the GC group. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, i got vague memories of that. I think I was still at that point in my career the, f- the previous few years where descents were a, a positive for me because I could descend well and catch back on. But I was having to re-engage that because I couldn't climb with the best at that point in the Tour de France. And I was getting, I'd been getting better at climbing and previous. I was just, it was, I was in a descending spiral. And so Alpe d'Huez for me was just a blur because <laughs> I was just, I'd already been dropped and then chased like a maniac, risking life and limb to get back on. And then tunnel vision the whole way up Alpe d'Huez, trying to defend my my honor and, and my status kind of. And so, yeah, again, it was just meh. Some some way from being the first British rider yeah. ever. Yeah. To, yeah. To, to it can finish yeah. off the best, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Armstrong Armstrong hung on. She took the yellow jersey that day. Sorry, he took the yellow jersey that day. Uh, despite the fact that Iban Mayo won the stage, Vinokurov finished second. So they all had a little nibble at him. It wasn't straightforward, but he took the yellow jersey. And I remember the next day, the next morning, and I'll share this photo with you guys and maybe on the show notes, I was on the front page of L'Equipe because there was a massive... No way. There was a massive photograph of the bundle afterwards. And me, basically, I occupy most of the frame of this photograph. And Armstrong's really small. And the, the headline is, Armstrong, oui, mais. So, yes, but. Because it was very uncertain about his form, actually. He looked under pressure. Sorry, it's a bit clunky, isn't it? Let's hear from David talking to me on, on the top of Alpe d'Huez, his first ever ride up Alpe d'Huez. David, yesterday you told us you nearly died and you saw stars in your eyes and all that sort of thing. Same again today? Yeah, today was probably worse, actually. No, I think it was really hard for everybody. Went hard from the gun. and um, Just a long day, you know, and after yesterday as well with the heat and the length of the stage. and those are, the, the mountains don't get any bigger than they do today. So <clears throat> today was probably one of the hardest days for me. So I'm kind of, it's the first time I've gone up to it. I've gone up out to it, so... I'm kind of happy it's done now. Well, what is that like? I mean, it's unimaginable for those from the outside, but I mean, on the inside, what does it look like? Uh, it's horrible. It's, um, I mean, it was good because there's so many people, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people coming up to Alpe d'Huez, but Christ, it's so much, it hurts so much. I mean, really horrible. I suppose what what was really weighing on my mind that no British rider had ever won an Alpe d'Huez. Yeah, it must have been. That was weighing on and, my mind as well, actually. Yeah. Especially like as, as I was with another British rider when I won. It was even it me was, or him, and I was like, it's going to be me. Got to do it. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Did you it's know that, that, were you aware that you were going to be the first British rider to win on Alpe d'Huez? I just wanted your mind. I, to be honest with you, Pete, I couldn't imagine any British rider ever winning on Alpe d'Huez <laughs> at that point in time. <laughs> it's so true. I'm going to be brutally honest. That's true. I'm, I'm going to be honest now as well. I, I didn't realize I was the first person to win on Alpe d'Huez until about two years after it happened <laughs> <laughs> but I'll never let um, you forget it no no, we shouldn't it's we definitely shouldn't stage nine stage nine we leave the Alps and as is traditional back in the day and even now um, the race goes to Gap and it was the famous and let's not forget the, r- the rider who attacked really early on in Alpe d'Huez on the Alpe d'Huez stage was Joseba Belocchi mm. He and his attack really pinned Armstrong. Like mm. he had to, he had to really ride Belocchi down, and Belocchi was beginning to spook Armstrong a bit. The next day, on the on the on the descent to Gap, 
Belocchi crashes in this intense heat. Do you remember how hot it was, David? Yeah, yeah I remember. I, I've got one of my stupidest, stupidest How hot was it in the Isle of Man? Yeah, I was at the Isle of Man. It was hot when I descended gas as well, like 15 years <laughs> yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. So that was, I came out of the Alps and I felt good, mainly because I was out of the Alps and I was feeling a bit healthier. And bit like my Ned. form kicked in. But it, it, it kind of reminded me, in hindsight, how stupid I was as a bike racer most of the time because I felt good and there was a breakaway gone of I can't remember a few riders and we came off this dam and you came off this climb and then it was like 40 k's to finish and it was a really hard climb for like four k's or something and I felt so good I was like I'm just going to go now because everyone seems indifferent and I kind of attacked and took a minute and a half and then hit a headwind in the on the road towards the climb to gap and they caught me at the bottom of the climb and I was like, you idiot, <laughs> you absolute idiot. Because then I got back to the hotel or got to the finish later and found out about the, the Balocchi crash and and those guys going off the front. And I was like, I'd have so easily been able to attack off that or been with them and go for the win. And I got carried away and did a stupid thing. And I looked like a moron bike racer. And that was a real kind of seminal moment for me because I was like, Jesus, it's you got to learn how to race your bike rather than just be emotional because I had the legs and the, the power to be in that bike race that day. And and then I got to the end of the day and saw the blocky crash. and I was like, God, that, that would have been so much fun to be up there with them. But then as for the blocky crash, that's nuts because I was on that climate and what Lance did that day we were, were waxing lyrical about Lance but it was quite funny seeing how that became well, a kind of a seminal moment of the Tour de France isn't it insane how like moments of the Tour de France and the history of the Tour de France resonates through and carries through year after year I mean we're talking 15 years later um like this 20. moment that happened with Lance Armstrong and Belocchi yeah. no not not this year I'm talking oh sorry four, four or five years ago where um Geraint Thomas oh, okay. crashed on the same descent and, and the team talking the sky bus, it was the Balocchi descent. The whole stage, it's, it's known as the Balocchi descent. Geraint Thomas crashes on the first right-hand corner as you enter the main part of the descent, hits the lamppost. It was quite, a, like, it looked horrific on TV. He was all right. But you go down so many other descents that are, uh, you know, way more dangerous than this Balocchi descent. Yeah, true. Yet there's something about the Tour de France where moments you know these moments happen and it just carries through for years and years after mm. and it creates Here, this tension yeah. that then formulates mm. something to then happen again for no reason here's a here's a totally mad one so ef the team ef would not exist without the blocky descent because okay. it's because doug ellis who is the wonderful american uh, lovely guy who created slipstream with jonathan waters he fell in love with the Tour de France because he watched that stage of the Tour de France in 2003 and was, what is this sport? And he stumbled across it. And then was like, how do I get involved in this? And and that's the only reason he then contacted, like started following it more, saw Lance do his run across the field, then saw the aftermath, then started following the Tour de France. And was like, well, this is weird. This is a really interesting thing. So then he got in touch with Jonathan Vorters and Jonathan Vorters kind of then that's the whole reason that Slipstream started I was with them 
and then that's the only reason EF exists, that, that team as we know now, is because Doug Ellis watched that stage. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Uh, p p yeah, Pete, um, yeah. I remember that on the morning of that, of, of that um, was it 2015 you said? Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember. It was either 2015 yeah, or 17. I think, I think it must be 15 because I went. I wasn't commentating. I went to do some filming in the morning and I went to Balocchi Corner to kind of recount that story and retell it. I had no idea how steep that was. So that field that looks like it's relatively flat is actually a steep, like, how and, and the ditch it, yeah. at the bottom. Oh, how he rode through it is quite, quite amazing. On, anyway. on 23 mil tyres, by the way. That's all we rode back then. Crazy little True. skinny things. <laughs> so anyway, let's hear from... Uh, well, hear if Lance La Armstrong is... Sorry, if Lance Armstrong's listening to this podcast, he's going to... He'll definitely be listening to His head will be not fitting through the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, here he is talking about um, that and talking about Jose Babalocchi's injury. First of all, the incident, from our point of view, is extraordinarily dramatic. How did it look from where you were? Well, uh, it was dramatic for me being on the bike. Um, I didn't... Uh, I didn't expect that to happen, and, and you never, you know, you can't train for that. So it's just a reaction, and and you get off. Uh, you know, when you see something like that happening, the, the first thing you do is you say, okay, where am I going to go? And I couldn't make it to the right. I couldn't go over him, and, and so I, I could only go left. And so when I went left, I was looking left, looking, and, and then I found a little a little path there into the field, and just just continued on. Presumably at the time you had no idea what had happened to uh, Joseba Balocchi, and um, now that we know the injuries are quite serious, how does that make you feel? No, it's. Like I said a minute ago, I mean, he was uh, he was racing the race and racing uh, aggressively. I mean, we were both, uh, he and I were both riding on the front to bring back Vino. It was at 20 seconds at the top. We got it down to 15 and then down to 10. So we were, you know, looked like we were going to bring him back. So you hate to see a guy who's who's out there, you know, doing his best and a real threat for the race to, to go down like that. Is Vino now a real threat for the race? Ah, he's, uh, yeah, yeah, he's, uh, he's appearing to be. All right, I'm going to crack on now because, um, the, well, the next day, actually, I can't crack on that fast. Dude. Stage <laughs> 10, stage 10 was amazing. It was a, there was a sprint for third place. It was into Marseille, right? Jacob Peel won the stage and I, mm. he beat an Italian rider whose name eludes me, a track rider. And everyone thought that, it doesn't matter. Mm. About <laughs> half an hour later, you lot come in and there's a sprint for third place. Mm. And David Miller decides to turn into a lead out man. Right? Oh, I Do you remember that? This. No, I've forgotten that. Okay, you literally got on the front and you did, I don't know, from about 300 metres out to about 150 metres to go, um, on the front, working for Baden-Cook. Oh, and yeah, for Brad McGee. my friend. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, I'd for totally forgotten about that. Riding for Coffin, it's a totally different team. You literally let out Baden-Cook. Amazing. Did you win? I'm a, oh, I got third. Um, Obviously, you didn't win because Jakob Pill won. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because Cook, yeah. Cookie was going for the green jersey. Exactly. Yeah, so I figured there was no there was no problem because we didn't have a sprinter in our team. Certainly, Baden not was a jersey rider. So old yeah, school so. that though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah just helping teammate, helping friends, yeah, helping yeah, friends. Yeah, super old school. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true, Pete. That was like the old days where you could just help friends. Yeah, and nice. no money. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stage eleven, Juan Antonio Fletcher. Yes, we're giving the old Archer celebration. You remember, and everyone yeah, for the first Fletcher. time. Worked Again. out that the word Fletcher is the same as Fletcher. Arrow. Legendary and moment. Out, and it's, yeah, for, not so much for cycling, but for linguistics. <laughs> <laughs> for everything, yeah. <laughs> it was incredibly interesting. He won by four seconds and the bunch finished at 23 seconds. Faso the Bortolo. Next day, the next day, stage 12, st yeah, Faso Bortolo, sorry. Stage 12, 
extraordinary heat, the Cap Découvert individual time trial. And it was over an hour in the saddle for Lance Armstrong. David, I don't know what happened to you. Armstrong lost one minute and 36 seconds to Jan Ulrich. He was dehydrated. He do you remember the story? The uh, so I remember I, him being dehydrated. Well, that was the story. But do you remember? Said. No, no, but Jan Ulrich was inside a shop. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Doing his warm-up in an air-conditioned shop. That's like Dave Brailsford, Team Sky. And Lance was doing standard. Yeah, it was like marginal gains. Before, marginal gains back you then, remember yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and that's where the whole... That's where the whole dynamic changed that day. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And, and the next stage, so I remember the time trial quite well, but the next stage is the, is the stage I'd completely forgotten. And looking back, it's kind of amazing. Stage 13 was a summit finish in the Pyrenees to Axe Trois Domaines. And what happens here is that Ulrich puts a hell of a lot of time back in, into Armstrong. This was my so he, first ever summit finish in the Tour de France, by the way. Was it? Yeah. Axe Trois Domaines. Mm -hmm. Oof. That's a nice... Oh, in 2013, Pete? Yeah. And didn't it finish Richie Port and Chris Froome, one and two? Quite possibly. I took them into Axel Domain and then I can't remember, but yeah. Did I you just do like the first K? Did you do the first K, two Ks? I, uh, first K, I did the, the climb before it, but I don't know what it was, but I just remember that. I remember that name of the climb yeah, really well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's not far it's from with where me. I am right now. Yeah. Um, just, 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 just very quickly. Isn't it mad? Trois men. Actually, trois domaines. Trois, trois domaines. Trois domaines. Actually, trois domaines. Three. So three. the three, three domains of ski places three, up there. Three, Pete. Right? Three, Trinity. Three. Yeah. Three. Two thousand. Three, Pete. Jesus Christ. Three. Yeah. I'm um, just going. Just briefly, very briefly, Ned. Isn't it mad that 2003 you'd have three. Jan Ulrich three. coming into your shop to warm up? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder now we've got trucks. I hope yeah. it wasn't a bakery because. He wouldn't have been in good shape for the last couple of weeks. Do, do you mind if it, do you mind if our uh, our guy here comes in and, and sets up his home trainer in your shop? Can you turn the air conditioning up to max? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that was two thousand and three. <laughs> <laughs> it's extraordinary. That's great, Carlos, actually, yeah. Carlos Sastre won the stage, age twenty eight. Oh, let's hope his dummy in his mouth. He put the dummy in his mouth. But Carl yeah. Sastre. Yeah. This is what amazing so, celebration. Because uh, I, I remember the GC race better than I remember the individual stage win from the breakaway. Carlos Sastre won the stage, right? And you thought, okay, okay, here's a, here's a climber who can win a stage in the Tour de France. He's probably never going to win the Tour de France. And he won it at the age of 28, his first stage win at the Tour de France. And then he wins the Tour de France five years later at the age of 33. 33? Like, yeah, that's my maths. It's kind of unimaginable. 33, Pete. You, your age, my age, his age. <laughs> Everyone passes through it who gets to that age. David's been there. Um, Jesus didn't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, at the, end, at the end of stage 13, which is a one and a three, um, <laughs> uh, there's only 15 seconds between... 15 seconds between Lance Armstrong and Jan Ulrich with the long individual time trial remaining. It is an amazing Tour de France. Stage 14 is the famous stage to Les Ardiden, where Armstrong crashes just outside 10 kilometres to go. Everyone kind of waits for him. Ivan, Ivan Mayo goes right over the top of him. Armstrong gets onto the group. No one knows what to do. Ivan Mayo then attacks. Armstrong counts. Ulrich counters. And then Armstrong crushes them all. Mm. Um, it was it was Jan that waited. Jan shouldn't have waited. 
There was, uh, must have been, uh, some, a spectator had something, probably like a bag or, it's like, let me say a musette, the feed bag. And the handle was just swinging around and uh, caught my handlebar. And when, when something like that happens, the spectator holds on to it and it holds on to your handlebar. And, you know, you, immediately you go down, as, you, as we saw. So, scared the hell out of me. But uh, I was lucky that the bike wasn't messed up because I got up and I thought, you know, if I have to change a bike or change a wheel, then it's going to take some time. But the only problem was the chain came off, put the chain on, and we go. I've skipped a stage. But let's yeah. let's not worry Maybe about I'll that. We've, we've jumped on. We've jumped on. So, so I suppose that this Two is a really later, key yeah. key indicator of the difference between Lizard uh or between Lance Armstrong and Jan Ulrich. La I don't think Lance would have waited in that, and any racer shouldn't think so. is final. Jan did wait for Lance, mm. and that was where the weakness was shown between the. But Tyler Hamilton did a bit of a. Fabian Cancellara thing, didn't he? Tyler yeah, Hamilton went to the, went to the front of the group and went, "Everybody stop, man!" Yeah, but Lance Tyler and I, I'm, I know Tyler and I like Tyler, but he's Could not. He get his left arm, or Lance Armstrong, or yeah. is it still <laughs> strapped up? Well, but that was Jan. Jan's just really nice. He had no Jan's teeth just left really nice. this. Yeah, so I think that that was what I think was a pivotal moment because yeah. that was where Jan Ulrich could have won the Tour de France, and he yep. decided to kowtow. To and in the end, he lost. He lost a bunch of time, and he finished. Over a minute down on GC at the end mm. of the day. Um, Tyler Hamilton's day, David, was the next stage. The big solo from the breakaway, stage 16. And um, you were involved in that. Mm. Yeah, this is a very... So this is a... It's very rarely that Tour de France races in the south... In the West Pyrenees, uh, on the French side. Um, and uh, going and finishing in... It was Bayonne. And I lived in Biarritz at the time and felt a little bit of connection to, be, to the Basque country. But what was really cool about it was that, I mean, I went off in the attack kind of in a, a bit of a kamikaze move, knowing that I wasn't strong enough to do it. And I had Inigo Cuesta with me, my teammate. So I was like, well, we can do this. And we had a good group with us. And then Tyler just rode away from us. Like <laughs> literally just rode away from us on, I think the Côte of Sudan or something. And we were like, oh, we can't, couldn't match him. That's the difference just, between a time trialist and a GC rider, though, isn't it? Completely. Just, they just ride away. And then it just, and then I just pulled the handbrake and game over. Uh, but yeah, it was pretty amazing watching him doing that and what happened. And uh, then all the aftermath as well of Tyler Hamilton, because I still am a little bit, there must have been a lot of painkillers involved for him to do that with the. Uh, a broken collarbone and a lot of stuff. pain. But it was kills. very, it was very much 2003 Tour de France. Yeah, that, that yeah. he could do that. That was yeah. that was in my honestly in hindsight because I I couldn't have done much in that stage. But so I was more on a uh, on a go down in flames, try to impress the local crowd, but then get dropped and no chance of winning. But I got to be at the sharp end with Tyler, and I was like, dude, what the hell is that? Yeah, you shouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> that's you got a broken collarbone <laughs> remember my um first commentary tour david where you had your yoga mat and you used to just like take a sleep anywhere and yeah <laughs> anytime you wanted and then you just start commentating and i'd be like god he's like i was trying to make a good impression i was like he's got some balls and now I'm, now it's all making sense it's like the stuff you've seen and the, the races you've been in <laughs> 
the, the fact that you're commentating in about three minutes time and you're live on air probably, okay up a go <laughs> tap me on the shoulder yeah all good <laughs> yeah no so i mean that stage was was amazing and it was also i think the the nadir of the 2003 tour de france if i'm yeah. honest yeah that mm. was that sh- tyler hamilton shouldn't have been able to do that and i like tyler but that that's not possible yeah uh, two transitional stages, one by Seves Carnarvon in Bordeaux on a solo, and then really, really um, uh, a close stage the following day on stage 18, where David Cañada, a Spanish rider from Quickstep, was caught within the last couple of hundred meters, and Pablo Lastras won again from a breakaway in a three-up sprint. And then came the individual time trial into Nantes, David, which was your... I don't know. Do, is is it? Does the result stand? I don't know. There was. I don't think so because uh, in my um in my anti in my my hearings I had I I admitted to all the races I well I, when I doped and I had doped before the 2003 Tour de France so I was not natural um, but then that day was really weird because obviously I had the residual effects of the doping before the Tour de France. Uh, and I'd given up, I'd been sick most of it. But I remember having had that horrible kind of post-prologue and then being sick most of it and having these up and down roller coaster of a ride, which was some days I'd be good, some days I'd be terrible. Uh, and then the final time trial, I was convinced I was going to have a terrible ride. So I didn't, normally I do a recon always before the, the time trial, no matter the weather, no matter the conditions. And they'd even they'd even organised what I always liked was to have uh, <laughs> people laugh at this, but you'll understand my own hotel room near the the race. I didn't want to hang out because normally I'd be later in the day, so I had my whole protocol was set up, but I didn't do any of the activation, didn't do any of the recon, didn't do any of the warm ups. You did a Thomas again. I did a Thomas again. I did exactly that. So I remember being in the hotel in the morning and the hotel is set up for me and it just be this storm came in which was mad it was so windy and it torrential was insane rain. it was incredible torrential weather. rain and i was so far down on gc and i was already thinking well storms don't last that long so i've been screwed because by the time the final riders go off it's going to be better so i was like i'm not even going to do a warm-up I don't care. It's like, it's over. It's done. I'll just get through this. And I still got on the, the camper van and got all my stuff set up and my bike was all prepped and the mechanics cared and everyone cared. And I cared about my tie pressure. And I rolled off the start ramp, no warm up, nothing. And there was this howling tailwind. And I just, and it was raining and I loved racing in the rain. And all of a sudden I had fun again. It was the first time since the prologue that I enjoyed riding my bike because I was going so fast. Let's, let's hear what you said to me at the end of yeah. um, your, your race. Ned Bolting caught up with him. David, well done, you got the best time. Yeah, 26 seconds, how is it out there? Well, I fell off once. <laughs> it's absolutely an ice rink the last uh, 15 Ks. How did you fall? <laughs> just uh, the wheel slid. I mean, it's, I was going so slow. <coughs> the 
okay. Did you do any damage when you when you fell, David? Do you think? Uh, no, I think I just cut my leg up. Oh yeah, no, nothing. <laughs> but it's uh, incredibly dangerous. Just stupid. Do you think it's safe to ride in these conditions? No, not that those last 15 k's. It's a. Uh, it's not. I was going taking zero risks. I mean, going around so slowly, like upright, and the wheels just boom, slide away. There's nothing you can do. You have to literally come to a standstill. It's uh, ridiculous. So you think they should actually call it off at this point? They should neutralise. They should put the finish like 15 k's before we come into Nantes. It's. Uh, it's just uh, stupid for guys like Lance and Jan. They shouldn't have to take risks like that. And that was that, David. They all crashed, apart from Armstrong, didn't they? Jan blew it, and Armstrong sealed the deal. And and that was that. That was the tour done, mm. apart from the small matter of Jean Patrick Nazon. <laughs> wow! From forget about Nazon. Jean Patrick Nazon won the bunch sprints on the Champs Elysees. Who I think, who I I don't know. I think he was the last French rider before Arnaud Demar to win a bunch sprint. Like, oh, Pete's raised his hand. What happened in the time trial when you had a howling headwind, a tailwind, and you felt amazing? You won it. He yeah, won, won it. it. Okay. Oh, you just didn't say yeah. that. That's all. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Unlike us to be, yeah, assuming yeah. kind of scant oh, on the right, details, okay. but yeah, he won it. He won it. Yeah, it was Epic. nuts, Pete. It was like yeah. so fast, like cruise average fifty-four point. Six kilometers an hour. What? Sorry, I, well, I obviously well, hadn't it? listened to the clip. Yeah, yeah. And no, no, there's not much. No, no, clip. but he didn't know then. Yeah. David, yeah, yeah. David, in the clip that you hadn't listened mm. to, David didn't know. But he, yeah, yeah. he oh. hung on, and all the GC yeah. riders, like, because yeah. after after Ulrich had basically slapped down two or three times, Armstrong just reined it back because he didn't have to yeah. do any more. Oh, and then David's David's. So, you know, so my my minute man at the time was, was my minute man was Upeshel who was one of the best time trialists in the world. And he was obviously back on GC. And I was like, oh God, well, this is going to be an indicator. So I started behind him. And I came in after like 20 Ks and you couldn't see anything. It was so dark, it, it, perceptively to me. Headlights were on. And I just came into roundabout and all team cars were pulled over and there were two riders crashing around about this like 25 Ks in. Because you, you were going at 65 Ks an hour. <laughs> like the wind was that strong and howling rain. And it was just like nuts. And I came in, I was like, whoa. <laughs> and the whole thing was just, I just remember. And as the time trial went on, I started to kind of go, oh, I'm going to go faster and faster. And I was just going so, f the fastest I've ever ridden on a bike in this howling tailwind. <laughs> like it, I was just, I got nothing to lose. Yeah. And so I was, I engaged all my skills from, mountain bike and bmx and everything else and just had a great time ripping and just and literally there were bike riders crashing everywhere it just kept kept coming by cars stopped and it was just like this is insane and and i didn't say this this was amazing because then when i finished i had to wait three or four hours for lance and uh, jan who were the favorites and they had their their big battle royale to go on uh so i just went and hung out because uh, we just had, didn't have team buses, there was no media, so I just went and sat uh, with the fans in one of their marquees and just sat there and had <laughs> snacks and some beers and just chilled out. No one knew who I was and watched it, watching it on the screen. What? Yeah, and then That's it turns out that I win, and because I, I had no idea I was going to win, and then I then I had to go back to my camping car. Then they all took me to the. It's still a camping car behind the podium. 
And I still remember sitting in there and I was just in tracky bums and they'd given me a coffee like jacket because I was just in t-shirt and the tracksuit. And <laughs> and Lance comes in and he's like with his wife and everything and they're just, I'm in the camping car with Lance and they're just getting hugs and it's like, I'm glad you won. And kind of, and it was just the weirdest thing to book in that Tour de France. Uh, that's why the 2003 tour was so weird. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I think my race ended shortly after that by interviewing Robin Williams, who used to pop up. Oh yeah, like, he on the loved Tour de it. Yeah, it's just amazing, just yeah. odd, odd time, odd, odd times, Pete. A good time in your life to be thirteen, yeah. an insane time in your life to be twenty-six, <laughs> and a really interesting time to be thirty-three, which is after all the holy number. <laughs>